Good morning, everybody. Oh, that's a bit half-hearted. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Uh, that's better. Um, last weekend, Paints and I were up in Newcastle with Cornerstone Church doing their church weekend away. Church weekends are brilliant. You get a lot done, have great fun together. It was great to have Paints along. Uh, really good to have his contribution. We were teaching through the book of Titus, and uh, it was uh, fantastic to be up with Cornerstone, see how well they're doing, a church we partner with and friends with up at the other end of the country. And um, yeah, so great to be there and, uh, and to anticipate our day together in June. This morning, we are in the book of Daniel. And we are in chapter 2 of Daniel, page 885, if you want to follow along. And this is a story about dreams, and it's a story about empires, and it's a story about God's sovereign hand. And uh, my aim this morning is that I want to help us to understand something about the kingdom of God, maybe get at something of a vision for the kingdom of God. Of God. As Christians, we often pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. And uh, we don't necessarily understand the fullness of what that means when we pray that. And so I'm hoping that by looking at this story in Daniel, we can get a, a better understanding of what it means to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. So Daniel chapter 2, we're going to start with a man called Nebuchadnezzar. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will cut you into pieces and your houses will be turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants a dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live amongst us. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. At this point in history, Nebuchadnezzar is the top dog in the world. He is king of the most significant global empire of the time. There's a map of it stretched over a huge area, the Babylonian area, from the borders of Egypt and really dominated Egypt as well, right across to what we think of as Iran now, a massive 
powerful empire, the most important global empire of the time. And Nebuchadnezzar was the longest reigning and the most powerful of all the Babylonian kings. He was king for about 40 years. And he'd been born into this. His father had been king before him. So Nebuchadnezzar was born into privilege and power. He was made for this stuff. And someone in that kind of position that's completely unassailable we talk about the top 1%, Nebuchadnezzar was the 0.00001%. He was the chief dude at the very pointy peak of the utmost pyramid of human power and influence and authority. And somebody in that position looks like they have nothing to worry about. But the reality is that they have plenty to worry about. And Nebuchadnezzar can't sleep, which is a good sign that he's feeling anxious about stuff. And when he does sleep, he has dreams, and his dreams are disturbed. And what we see here that being rich and powerful might bring some sense of security. It does if you're rich and powerful. It insulates you against all the other kinds of problems that most people have to worry about. If you're rich, you don't have to worry about how you can afford to buy the kids' school shoes again. And uh, if your boiler busts and if you're rich you don't have to worry about how you're going to afford to replace your boiler so if you're rich and powerful you're insulated from the kind of issues that the rest of us have to deal with but being rich and powerful also brings all kinds of insecurities and vulnerabilities with it because the question becomes how am I going to hold on to this how do I stay rich and powerful so being rich and powerful might not actually be that great and the Bible picture, the, the, the instruction the Bible gives us about how to live a good life, how to live a, a, a fulfilled life, a happy life, is rather different. The Bible says, choose the way of humility. Act with humility before God and with one another. And actually, that's going to bring you into more peace in the world than being, ah, it's all about me, like Nebuchadnezzar was. It, the Bible teaches us to live with contentment, to be content in all things. If you can learn to be content in all things, you can be content in all things. You don't have to be rich and powerful. The Bible teaches us about being faithful stewards of the things that we have and being generous with the things that we have. And that leads to a more fulfilled, happier life than trying to hold on to all the stuff that you have. So Nebuchadnezzar looked like he had it made, but actually he's a man under pressure. He's a man who's experienced stress. He's a man who in many ways is vulnerable. He's a man who's had a disturbing dream and he believes in the significance of dreams. And dreams can be significant. Medical science is increasingly telling us about the significance of dreams. Dreams happen when we enter the REM phase of sleep, different phases of sleep. You dream when you enter that deep sleep, REM sleep. And the uh, medical science seems to be showing that that phase of sleep and the dreams that happen are important for our emotional health. So all those weird thoughts that go through your mind at night as you're dreaming, which might seem connected to stuff in the world or totally disconnected, but somehow help us in our minds to sort all the stuff that's going on and help us to be healthier than we would be if we didn't go through that kind of process as we sleep. Of course, there are also all kinds of mystical and psychic interpretations of dreams. Some people get really into dream analysis, and I think that can open up all kinds of unhealthy things. But in the Bible... God often speaks through dreams. And there's actually a promise that God makes that he will speak to his people through dreams and through visions. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter stands up and he quotes from the prophecy of Joel. Joel chapter 2, 
and says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Part of living in the age of the Spirit is that God reveals things to his people by his Holy Spirit, reveals things to us in dreams and visions. Now Nebuchadnezzar knows that this dream that he's had isn't just another troubled dream of an anxious, stressed man. There's something going on with this dream, but what? And The fact that Nebuchadnezzar knows there's something going on but doesn't know what it means demonstrates his limitations. He's the most powerful man on earth, but he's unable to interpret his own dream. And I think it's this sense of impotence he feels here which fuels his harsh response towards his advisors. If you don't tell me what the dream is and you don't interpret it, I'm going to turn you into sausage meat and your houses into powder. I think he's feeling impotent. He's got this dream. He knows it's significant. He can't interpret it, the most powerful man in the world. And so he kind of tries to reinforce his sense of power with the extraordinary extent of his threats against his advisors. And he knows, the trouble is, he knows if he tells them the dream, because of the power relationship between them, he knows what's going to happen. It's like you read your horoscope or you go to see a fortune teller at the fairground. And what, what is the story? It's always... Oh, there's a tall, dark stranger who's going to enter your life. You're going to fall in love. You're going to be incredibly rich. That's what always happens. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar knows is going to happen. That if he tells his advisors the dream, of course they're going to interpret it. But it's all going to be, oh, king, you're so mighty. Oh, king, you're so wonderful. Oh, king, your empire's going to last forever. Oh, king, everybody loves you in the world. That's what it's going to be. It won't be the truth. So he's employing a bunch of special advisors, just like our politicians do now, as ministers and prime ministers in our context surround themselves with special advisors to help them, advise them, and make them feel better about themselves. Nebuchadnezzar has all those guys around him, but he doesn't really believe them, and he doesn't really trust them. He's looking for validation from them, but he knows their validation is fake. And that feels very contemporary in our social media world, where so many of us are always looking for validation. Has it been liked? Has it been approved? Has it got the thumbs up, even as we know that so often that is false and fake and flimsy? And what we see here is the fragility of Nebuchadnezzar's power. He's the most powerful man in the world, but he's also incredibly fragile. And when his special advisors kind of, oh, give us some time, give us a way through, he's furious with them. And what you see here is the fury of thwarted power. I'm the most powerful man in the whole world, and I can't even get this done. You can feel his kind of burning anger in the story. What is it that makes us angry? I think often it is the things which make us most angry are those points where we feel that our power, our competence is being thwarted in some way. That's why if you're a parent, you'll probably know that the thing which can make you most angry is your children. That's why you see it all the time in the supermarket, a two-year-old having a tantrum, and the parent is just furious. Why? It's because, what is this thing? It's a small thing in a pram, sitting or sitting in the trolley. It's small, it knows nothing, it's much weaker than I am, and now it's in complete control of my life, and everybody is staring at me, it's controlling me, it's controlling the whole supermarket, and I want to kill you! 
And so we've all seen it. We've seen it in the supermarket with a parent yelling in frustrated fury at their two-year-old because the two-year-old's throwing a tantrum. Why? Because it's a sense of thwarted power. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's like. He's like the two-year-old throwing a tantrum. He's like the parent who's responding by saying, oh, I hate you, wait till we get home. Nebuchadnezzar is powerful, but he's also vulnerable. He's terrifying, but he's fragile. He's a, he's a picture of human power. He's also a picture of human pride, and he's a picture of human limits. Man, he needs some help. Daniel, verse 13. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're also known. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Daniel is an exile. Nebuchadnezzar has come to Jerusalem, conquered it, and he's casted a bunch of the people of Israel back into Babylonia. The people of God had left Babylonia centuries before when God had called Abraham out of Babylonia to go to the promised land, but now because of their sin against God, they are taken back to Babylon. They're living as captives, living as exiles. And Daniel has a position of some influence. He's a position in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He's one of the wise men, but he doesn't really have any power because all lives, especially the lives of exiles, hang on Nebuchadnezzar's thread. And at any moment, he can choose just to cut that thread, and that's your life over. So how does Daniel get out of this fix? A couple of things we can see about Daniel. The first is that he has wisdom and tact. He speaks to the man who's meant to be executing him with wisdom and tact. He gets the picture. He gets an understanding of what's going on. And then he is able to diffuse Nebuchadnezzar's fury and buys himself some time. And this is amazing because back in verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar had said to all the other wise men, don't try and buy time. I know what you're up to. I'm going to kill you. But somehow Daniel goes in and he manages to buy some time. He manages to soothe Nebuchadnezzar's fury. And I think this must be because there was something about Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel isn't just jerking him around. There's an integrity about Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, in his fury, trusts Daniel and gives him some time. I also wonder if Nebuchadnezzar's feeling just a little bit embarrassed 
about his temper. You know, the most powerful man in the world. And he's saying, I'm going to turn you into sausage meat and turn your house into powder. If you don't tell me what my dream means, I wonder if he's just cooled off a little bit now when Daniel appears and he's sitting there having a bit of a quiet moment with himself, feeling a bit, oh man, I've been such a jerk again. Most powerful man in the world acting like a two-year-old. I wonder if he's having one of those moments. And uh, Daniel goes in and is able to soothe him by some time. Daniel acts with wisdom and tact. Something else about Daniel is that he has some friends. He's got some allies. He goes back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He enlists their help. Now, Daniel and his three friends are living in exile. Those of us who are Christians, we're living in exile. The world as it now is, is not our home as it will be. And how do you not only survive, but thrive in exile? You do that in community. You do it by having some friends around you. You do it by being in your CBR group and going to life group and being part of a church by being in community. That's how you survive in exile. You can't do it on your own. Even Daniel couldn't do it on his own. Daniel needed community. Daniel needed friendship. Daniel needed church. And so he goes and finds some friends. He finds some allies and they call out to God because the other thing that they have is a merciful God. Let's ask God for mercy is what Daniel says to his friends. There's a contrast here between Nebuchadnezzar, who has all human power and is capricious and cruel and vindictive and furious, and God, who actually has all power and is merciful. Daniel has wisdom and tact. He's got some friends, and he has a merciful God. Now, how are we to conduct ourselves in the face of a Nebuchadnezzar? There's people or things in our life which seem cruel and vindictive and capricious, like Nebuchadnezzar, how do we handle ourselves? Well, we're to handle ourselves like Daniel. How are we to live in exile like Daniel? The same kind of integrity and trust in God that he displayed. Now, what happened to Daniel is extraordinary. God reveals to him the dream. But why not? Why shouldn't the Lord be able to do this kind of thing? So let's look at the vision at the dream, verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, Your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, 
its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes are partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people, it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, as dreams go, this isn't the most bizarre. I have weirder dreams than this most nights. But, uh, uh, but it is unusual. It was unusual in its clarity. And understanding Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue is key to understanding the whole of the book of Daniel and actually to understanding the whole of human history. Uh, if you haven't been here the past couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, gave out these, which have a little chart on the back, which... Just, uh, helps you see the different parts of Daniel, what it refers to in terms of uh, different kingdoms it's talking about. I'd encourage you to grab one of those if you haven't from the tables uh, where you came in. But what the statue represents is these four kingdoms, the Babylonian Empire, the, Greek, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire and all human kingdoms since the day of Rome. And then this rock is cut out, which smashes them all. Now, the overarching theme of Daniel is this. God is king. And here, Nebuchadnezzar gets an insight into that. Kingdoms of men rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will endure forever. And actually, it is God who allows human kings to be set up and God who <coughs> disposes them. There is a kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of God, which will blow all other kingdoms like chaff to the wind. 
Now, what is this kingdom of God? When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, what, is it, what does that mean? What are we praying for? The kingdom of God is wherever we see God's will being enacted. We see God's will being done. It's where we experience shalom. Shalom is that Hebrew word, a word using greeting, which means peace, but so much more than just peace. It means harmony, unity. It means beauty and integrity. Uh, there's a, a, a holistic thing about shalom. It means when you're living in shalom, it means everything is working as it's meant to work. Relationships are good and right and and rather than thorns and thistles, it's crops that are growing. And rather than hassle and stress, it's harmony and peace. That's shalom. It's when everything operates as it's meant to operate. In Genesis 1, we see God making the world and creating a world of shalom. We see him creating a world which is beautiful and good. We see the kingdom of God in operation. God's will is being done and everything is working as it should. There's peace, there's harmony, there's life, there's unity, there's joy, there's happiness. And then we see the kingdom of man being set up. As Adam and Eve rebel against God, as the first people push back against God and set up their own kingdom. And as a consequence, we see the fruit of the kingdom of men. We see rather than peace, we see warfare and hatred and murder and discord and marital breakdown and all the mess that happens. And we get to Genesis 4 and Cain... Adam and Eve's son, who has killed his brother Abel, builds a city. And building a city is all about building a kingdom. It's politics. Cain is the first murderer and he's the first politician. And ever since, murder and politics have gone hand in hand. That's how the world works. That's the kingdom of men. And then we get to Genesis chapter 11 and the people of the earth come to a place called Babel and they build a great city and they build a great tower because they're wanting to build a kingdom, establish their kingdom. But God says that he's going to restore shalom. He's going to restore his kingdom. And in Genesis 12, he calls a man called Abraham, calls him out of Babylonia, calls him to Canaan, where Abraham and his descendants are to build a community which is meant to be a model of the kingdom of God. It's meant to be a place of shalom. But the tragedy of the story is that again and again, the people of Israel fail and they fail and they fail until at last... They go back to where Abraham started. They're taken back as exiles into Babylonia. Now the vision of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar has and which Daniel interprets shows that this is not how things will end. In the era of the fourth kingdom, the iron kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, an angel appears to a young woman called Mary and says this, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That was the announcement that came when Jesus was born. It's an announcement of the kingdom, the never-ending kingdom of God being established. And then when Jesus began his public ministry, he said this, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus said that his kingdom was different from all the other kingdoms, all the kingdoms of men. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, at the time when Jesus was walking the earth, it looked like the Iron Kingdom was in charge. Rome was in charge. And at the cross of Christ, it looked like the Iron Kingdom that 
smashes everything had one, but God has a different plan. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ demonstrates that the kingdom of God is breaking out. Shalom is going to be restored. Death no longer has the final word. Human sin is no longer the ultimate power. The kingdom of God is coming. Now turn back hundreds of years to Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. Nebuchadnezzar had planned to grind his special advisors into sausage meat because they couldn't read the dream he had. And the kingdom of Rome grinds Jesus at the cross. But then the kingdom of God is revealed. The thing about human empires is they always think they're the pinnacle, always think they're eternal. Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Alexander the Great, the Romans, the Mongols, the Ottomans, the Victorians, the Americans, the Chinese. Everybody thinks their empire is the pinnacle of human achievement and will last forever. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was very vivid about this. A rock has been cut out and it's actually that rock which does the smashing. It's that rock which does the grinding. All other kingdoms will be blown to the winds. And the rock is cut out not by human hands. It's not the kingdom of man. This is a work of God's. Coming of Jesus was like this. Jesus born of a virgin. Jesus who had a heavenly origin, not an earthly one. And Jesus saw himself as a stone. This is what Jesus said. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone, and here Jesus is quoting from Daniel, quoting this vision, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. You build your own kingdom, you build your own empire, what's going to happen is it's going to be crushed in the end and blown to the wind because it is only the kingdom of God that will endure. And the stone that was cut out in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is both Jesus and then the kingdom that he brings. And his kingdom cannot be resisted. Jesus taught that the kingdom he brought in is a kingdom that grows, although it does this subtly. He told them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds perch in its branches. Now how does this happen? How is it that the kingdom of God advances? How does that rock which is cut out small and then fill the whole earth? How does it happen? How does it happen that a mustard seed becomes a great tree? How does it happen that a little bit of yeast causes a whole loaf to rise? It happens through the witness of the church. Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I'm giving you more, says Jesus. Now, are we believing for more? Our theme here at Gateway this year is this little word, little four-letter word, more. Our weekend away, as Matt said earlier, we themed it around more. We're looking for more. 
We're looking for more of God's presence. We're looking for more of God's blessing. We're looking for more evidence of his power. We're looking for more signs and wonders. We're looking for more people to come to a knowledge of him. We're looking for more baptisms. We're looking for more laborers in the harvest. We're looking for more influence in our town. We're looking for the breaking out of the kingdom of God. Now, it's easy to say these things, but we need to feel them in our guts. We need to feel it in our bones that we are called to more because the kingdom is growing and it will not be resisted. Do we feel it? Do we know it? Yes, we've been called to this kingdom, this kingdom of more. Now, what was the result of Daniel being given the interpretation by God? This is what it says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, chief ministers over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Daniel is in exile, but he begins to rule. What happens is that Nebuchadnezzar honors Daniel because he sees the evidence of God's hand upon Daniel. What happens is that Daniel becomes an example of the kingdom of God at work. What happens is that Daniel is a bringer of shalom. He starts to bring the peace. He starts to bring the rule of God, even at the very heart of empire. And what does this mean for us in our context? What does it mean for us here in BCP? What it means is this. It means we need to stay faithful to Jesus. Be faithful to the Lord. Daniel and his friends were in the midst of real pressure in the place of real vulnerability they stayed faithful to God they trusted God stay faithful to God it means that we need to look for more demonstrations of the kingdom breaking out we do we need to believe for more the more that God can do amongst us in this place we need to believe for more here Gateway Church all the road in 502 Ashley Road we need to believe for more what God can God do We belong to a kingdom that will fill the whole earth. We belong to a kingdom that will cause all other kingdoms to be blown away like chaff. What more can God do amongst us? We need to believe for more because the kingdom of God is filling the whole earth. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Let's pray for the kingdom of God to come. Let's stand together and let's pray the Lord's Prayer as a congregation together. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Yes, Lord, thank you that the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now 
and forever. That was true in Babylon, 600 BC. It's true in Jerusalem, AD 30. It's true here in Paul and Bournemouth, 2019. You are the King. You are the Lord. And I pray that we would, uh, Lord, we would we'd lay hold of the kingdom of God and we would see more of the kingdom of God breaking out in our experience. So pray for, for us here, Jesus, at Gateway Church and for all our brothers and sisters in churches across this town who know you and proclaim the gospel and pray this prayer with us. Your kingdom come. I pray that we would see the kingdom of God breaking out in our day, in our town, for your glory. In your name we ask it, King Jesus. Amen. Let's worship him.